Morning, friends. Good to see you today. Let me say thank you to Pastor Brian, who filled in for me two weeks ago, and Chris Hammock, who preached last week. I understand his sermon was very good on 1 John 1.9. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I know you uh, enjoyed listening to our good brother Chris uh, from up in Dawsonville. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our study in Mark's account of Jesus. We are in the middle section, and uh, the primary focus here is Jesus uh, spending time with his disciples. This is really a small manual on uh, what it means to be his follower, what it means to be his disciple. So, Uh, Let's uh, read our passage today, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out loud and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's holy and inerrant and authoritative word. Uh, May he bless what we've just read, and let's pause and ask for his help as we uh, continue this morning. Lord, we know that your word is living and active, and we pray that it would be so in our lives today. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to 
understand and believe what your word says. I ask that you'd uh, strengthen me to proclaim your word clearly. Uh, Father, I pray that all of us would grow in grace uh, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. I pray, Father, for those here who might not yet know your Son, that you would draw them to saving faith through your word today. Please be with us and help us now. Uh, we pray through Christ. Amen. Failure Analysis Associates, a strange name for a company, uh, it was founded in 1967. The company was made up of scientists, doctors, engineers, and a host of other experts from a wide number of fields that performed research and analysis. The main purpose of Failure Analysis associate, Associates was to answer the question, what went wrong? So when a walkway collapsed at the Kansas City Hyatt Regency in 1981, Failure Analysis Associates was called to determine what went wrong. And they linked this tragedy to an improperly placed bolt that was unable to support the weight, the people standing on uh, this bridge. Uh, when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded in 1986, Failure Analysis Associates was there and helped trace the failure to those infamous O-rings that cracked in cold Florida weather. When fumes at uh, the rocket fuel plant in Henderson, Nevada overcame 55 people in 1992, Failure Analysis Associates found a leaking chlorine gas line was responsible. And then finally, when uh, San Diego's undersea sewage line burst in 1992, the city called uh, this company the master of disaster to determine what went wrong. And nine months and $352,000 later, after poring over data and creating computer models and consulting engineers in all kinds of disciplines and scrutinizing broken pipe sections, they determined that trapped air had caused the sewage line to fail and spew uh, raw sewage into the uh, Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Diego. The company still exists, now goes by the name Exponent, uh, and has become a necessity in this world we live in uh, with sky-high uh, labor rates and escalating legal costs. What went wrong is the question that they're asking as our passage opens today. As the curtain goes up on this account in Mark chapter 9, the question being asked, argued really, is what went wrong? There are four scenes in our passage uh, this morning. And as the first scene opens, we find disaster. Uh, the first scene opens and reveals us the disaster that's taken place among Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is coming down from Mount Hermon with his inner circle, and he finds the remaining nine disciples arguing with the scribes about their failure to cast out a demon. Let me point out three things in this disaster to you. 
The first is we see the controversy that they're embroiled in uh, between the disciples and the scribes. Look at verse 14 with me. And when they came to the disciples, they being Jesus and Peter, James, and John, sometimes called the inner circle, uh, these three men also accompanied him uh, in, in other occasions, just the three. And they've been up with him on uh, Mount Hermon. Uh, in the first part of chapter 9, we saw that uh, Jesus and his men were still up to the north in this uh, area of Caesarea Philippi. And at the beginning of chapter 9, 9 verse 2 and following, they uh, ascend Mount Hermon. This is Peter and James and John, while the remaining nine remain uh, down below. This, again, is the tallest mountain peak in that whole part of the world, in the land of Palestine. Uh, and Jesus took his inner circle up Mount Hermon and was transfigured before them. And verse 14 describes their descent now uh, from Mount Hermon. Peter, James, and John practically floating down the mountain after all the wonderful things they had seen up there. The radiant glory of Christ, Moses and Elijah, the main lawgiver of Israel, the, one of their main prophets. People hadn't seen them in a thousand years. And God's glory cloud that had descended on the mountains, uh, sometimes called his Shekinah glory. And because of all this all these wondrous things, again, it's like they were floating down the mountain. But what do they find when they get to the bottom? Again, verse 9 says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And this word uh, means to discuss vehemently, to speak hotly, uh, to argue passionately. And these experts in Jewish law were playing the role of failure analysis associates with Jesus' nine remaining men. And they're having a heated debate about what went wrong. It's a very public failure. Um, and that's why I call it a disaster. But look at 15, and, and what happens when the crowd sees Jesus? And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now, now here's an authority. Something far greater than failure analysis associates is here. And so they stream to Christ uh, uh, and leave this debate about what went wrong. Uh, there, there's a clear distinction between Jesus and his disciples. He's, he's commissioned these men to minister for him. But Jesus just, I don't want to word, uh, the word oozes. It's just not appropriate. <laughs> but authority, he had an authoritative air about him. Uh, and there is something radically different about Christ's presence and uh, his disciples. He, he radiated the authority as the divine son of God. And, and drawing near, he asked what they'd been arguing about. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with, with them? Uh, uh, Christ wants to know uh, what the topic of discussion is. And this leads us to uh, 
the condition, the, the only person who speaks up is, is a father who goes on to describe his son's condition in, in verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. As the rest of the account will, will tell us, uh, this is a clear account of uh, demon possession. Matthew and Luke and their versions also make that clear. Over the years, some have tried to argue that Mark is simply trying to uh, explain uh, an epileptic seizure in supernatural terms. Um, I, I assure you that is not the case here. It, it is quite clear, and, and Jesus himself addresses this unclean spirit. That's how he refers to demons in the book of Mark. And this is not an epileptic seizure, merely that. It, it is a case of, of demon possession. And, and look at the graphic way that Mark describes this demon possession. Not only did the demon make the boy mute, he also flung him to the ground trying to injure him. You think of someone taking a bad fall and uh, what can result from that. This demon purposely made him fall, threw him uh, to the ground. He foamed at the mouth. He clenched his teeth and became completely rigid. And then later Jesus will add, uh, or the father will add that the demon often threw the boy into the fire and water, attempting to kill him. And so the result of these attacks is probably this young child is covered with scars and wounds from these various injuries that he's received. And I make no mistake here, this is what Satan attempts to do to every human. To destroy the image of God in man by destroying that person. And I, I don't want to alarm you, but it does say that he is out to get you if you know Christ. John 10.10 10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy and Peter wrote, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is a very dangerous condition that this young boy is in. He's possessed uh, by an unclean spirit that is trying to destroy him. And this brings us thirdly to the cause the reason for this controversy uh, between the disciples and the scribes. Uh, continuing on at the end of verse 18, the boy's father says this. Uh, he said, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Or more literally, they weren't strong enough. They couldn't do it. It had been a spectacular failure to cast the demon out. 
And they had been arguing back and forth but with these scribes, these experts in Jewish law about what went wrong. But casting out demons was the very thing the disciples were commissioned to do. And back in chapter 3, we read this, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then in chapter 6, we read this, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And, and chapter 6 tells us they were successful in this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Yet in this instance, Mark says they were not able. They weren't strong enough. What went wrong? Why did they fail? Why did they lack spiritual strength to free this boy from the demon? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus, uh, th this is an exclamation, although it's not so obvious in English. Uh, oh, faithless generation. That's, a, that's an interjection, and it expresses great emotion. Jesus is grieved by this. He's grieved because his disciples are displaying the same characteristic uh, of the world around them, that they're faithless. Now, what does Jesus mean by faithless? Uh, this is clearly a reference to the nine, but then beyond the nine, to, to those around in the culture. And he calls them all, what does Christ mean? They'd already expressed their faith and belief that Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed king. Uh, back in chapter 8, you remember Peter uh, speaking for them all, said, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. And so Jesus didn't mean faithless in that sense. They knew who he was. They knew he was the son of God and, and God's king. The word faithless here, I believe, means they were characterized by a lack of, of trust or a lack of reliance on or a lack of faith in someone. These nine, as well as the broader population, they displayed an unwillingness to take God at his word, a reluctance to believe that God would do what he said he would do. Similar to the city of Nazareth, in chapter 6, it said Jesus could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. They failed to deliver the boy, the cause of this very public failure. The reason that things went wrong was they failed to rely on Christ and his word. 
perhaps were trying to pull it off under their own steam. So this is scene one, disaster. Uh, disaster. Jesus descends from Mount Hermon to find his disciples arguing with scribes about what went wrong. There's a controversy, there's the condition of the boy, and then the cause of that fiasco. But this brings us to scene two. And as the curtain goes up on scene two, we, we, we hear desperation. Uh, sweating brow, clench fist, clench uh, fisted desperation. Uh, Jesus witnesses the boy's condition himself and hears the father desperately plea for help. Two things I want to point out here. The, the desperate condition, Mark is going to describe the boy's uh, condition uh, in, a more, in a fuller way, uh, a little more complete way. Notice verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming, at the mouth, confronted by the Son of God, the demon immediately makes another attempt to one last try to injure and kill his young host. The word convulsed, it's a violent term. Uh, it, it originally referred to the, the way a wild dog would tear into a, 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 the body of a dead animal. And the word gradually came to be used in the medical uh, world. And it referred to violent retching or violent shaking. And then the three verbs that follow that uh, portray a, a chaotic scene. Uh, throwing the boy to the ground as he'd done before. The boy was constantly rolling around on the ground and continuously foaming at the mouth. It was a disturbing scene. It, it, was, it was violent. It was dramatic. And he goes on to describe how dangerous this was when it took place. Verse 21 tells us that he'd been experiencing this since childhood. It says, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. These episodes had gone on a, a long time. Can you imagine the father and his, the agony of watching his son tormented like this? And verse 22 says it's, it's life-threatening, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Mark gives us a further description of this boy's condition, and it is, it is desperate. It's extremely serious. It's, it's life-threatening. But then the next thing we hear is a desperate plea from this father. Uh, listen, listen to the agony as he pleads in verse 22, and it is... Uh, as 22 continues, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It doesn't sound like a very uh, 
doesn't sound like he has much faith. Well, how would you respond if, after you'd watched the disciples fail, trying to cast a demon out of your son? You'd be downcast. You'd, it, it, he's close to losing all hope here. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. Lord, be moved. Let this move you, Lord, and, and help us. Matthew's account says he's on his knees. And Luke's version says that he begged Jesus. Luke adds, too, that this is his only son. And Jesus replies in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. It's an exclamation. If you can indeed, for the person who relies on him and depends completely on Jesus, all things are possible. It's not mean. Please listen now. If you've been dozing off, whatever, pay attention now. It's not mean that every prayer will be answered if only you have enough faith. But that's what it says on TV, isn't it? That's what they say on TV all the time. It, this does not mean that our, our every prayer will be answered with a yes if we only have enough faith. After all, Jesus' own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was not answered with yes. He, he, he prayed, Father, please deliver me. Uh, let this cup pass from me. Please deliver me from experiencing your wrath on the cross. And the answer that Christ received from the Father was no. But listen to the whole phrase. Um, listen to his entire request. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. All things are possible does not mean that we'll get a yes to every request, but, but that God is able to do whatever. Pastor Ken Hughes comments, this is one of the most abused verses in the Bible today. People have ripped it from its context and made it the rationale for saying that their wishes will come true if they can just mount enough faith. There are some who even teach that faith can control God, that if you believe enough, God has to do it. He concludes, that is man-made, man-centered religion. The fact is, faith must never go farther than God's clear promises. For whatever goes beyond God's word is not faith, but something else assuming its appearance. This isn't a blanket statement saying that God will do whatever you ask if only you have enough faith. It's not Jesus saying, come on, man. Come on, believe, believe. And I don't know how many football players I've heard in the post-game comments, oh, I knew I just had to keep the faith. And if I had faith, we'd win. Have you heard stuff like the faith in what? 
I want you to look at his answer because it was really something. Look at verse 24 with me now. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. It's incredibly transparent and honest. He confesses to Christ that although he has faith, it's not what it needs to be. He acknowledges that his belief is mixed with unbelief. But, but he's repentant and cries for help to overcome his unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's here to encourage you and me. I think his answer is here partly to encourage you and me. It's not the amount of faith that you have. It's not the greatness of faith that you have. It's the object of your faith that's what's important. His father's not looking to himself. He's not relying on himself. He's entrusted the life of his son into the hands of Christ. And he is completely and desperately relying on Christ. And I want you to see that faith in Christ, even weak faith, is enough. Dr. R.C. Sproul comments on it like this. Every Christian has some level of authentic saving faith in his or her heart. If they're a Christian, we know that that is absolutely true. Every Christian has some level of authentic saving faith in his or her heart. However, the intensity of that faith is not constant. It waxes and wanes. It increases and diminishes. No matter how strong your faith is, there are moments in this life when it is assaulted by the enemy. Sometimes it can seem as if your faith is barely hanging on. And you make a prayer much like this man made to Jesus. I believe, but my belief is not perfect it is not pure. It is not strong. I need help. Help me with my unbelief. You know, I'm convinced. I think we feel bad when we feel like this. And we feel like we're a rotten Christian because we're not walking around barrel-chested with great faith able to leap tall buildings and whatever, you know. And we have this idea of an ideal Christian that's impossible to live up to because we feel like this, like this man. 
because our faith is assaulted by the enemy. I love this way. Your faith is barely hanging on. And you make a prayer like this. Lord, my, my belief is not perfect. It's not pure. I need help. Help with my unbelief. I, I, I really do believe this is meant to encourage us. It's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And even weak faith, like this father's, accomplishes things. So, this is scene two. Desperation. The son who is, his life is threatened. And the father who cries out to Christ, I believe, help my unbelief. This brings us to scene three. Scene three, the curtain goes up and we find deliverance. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running, uh, running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Oh man, I like TV shows where it ends good and where justice is served. They're so satisfying. And uh, wouldn't you have loved to hear Jesus, uh, God's anointed, say this uh, to that unclean spirit. Uh, the words Jesus uses here um, are, are emphatic. I command you is, uh, the, the emphasis doesn't come across in the English, but the statement is, it's I who command you. I myself command you. And by that, perhaps he means I, the one who created you, commands you. He, after all, did create everything and rules everything. I command you. It's me who commands you. The, the I am commands you. Leave the boy and never return. Would have been uh, thrilling to observe. As a brief side note, I want to point out that a genuine believer can never be possessed by a demon. And the reason for this is because a genuine Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in him, uh, him or her, and, and cannot be indwelt by a demon. A genuine follower of Christ is possessed by God and cannot be possessed by a demon. Certainly, a Christian can be influenced by the demonic, led into sin by the demonic, never possessed by a demon. Verse 26 continues, And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Note Mark's word choice. He's using the language of resurrection. 
lifted him up and he arose. And, and I believe the point is that this boy has not just been delivered from a demon. He has been raised to walk in newness of life, as Paul says it in Romans 6. He's been raised to a new kind of life. I would refer to him as a believer at this point. But this is scene three, deliverance. Uh, Jesus commands the demon to depart, and he raises up the boy. This brings us to our, our fourth scene, and this is really, it kind of serves as an epilogue. You know, that last five minutes of the TV show where people get back together and they explained what happened. This, is, this has that flavor to it. Uh, the main characters, some of them at least, are reassembled and, and they evaluate what's taken place. They, they still haven't answered the question, what went wrong? And in this epilogue, Jesus explains to his disciples that like the boy's father, they must also be desperately dependent on him. Look at verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? They, they seem genuinely confused. Uh, they're, they're at a loss, especially in light of their previous success in, in casting out demons. Lord, why did we fail? Why couldn't we cast it out? What went wrong? And Jesus explains in verse 29, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind doesn't indicate an especially strong demon or a special class of demon. This kind refers to demonic in general, uh, what Paul calls the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These kinds of evil spiritual forces, Jesus says, can't be driven out by anything but prayer indicating that apparently they had not prayed before attempting to cast out the demon. Now let me be clear, Jesus is not just saying, hey, say a prayer when you attempt something like this. He's not just referring to the act of prayer. Stop and say a prayer when you try this. He's not referring to prayer made without thinking, as though it was an item on a checklist. Assemble the the demon possessed one, say a prayer, and then, you know, so on. It's more than mere words. Prayer demonstrates an attitude of dependence. Prayer demonstrates that in ourselves we are weak and not up to the task. Prayer demonstrates the belief that in ourselves we have nothing, but in Christ we have everything. And so one scholar writing about this suggests that because of their previous success in casting out demons, the disciples might have come to see themselves as experts in the area of demon possession, or at least sufficiently comment to handle another case without too much trouble. We've done this, we've done this plenty of times. We have a good idea of what's going on. Just give us, give us a few minutes. We, we do know what we're doing here. Their misplaced self-confidence 
led to a very public and very humiliating failure. And not to mention ridicule by the scribes. But it was exactly what they needed to happen to them. It's exactly what they needed. It was just what they needed to remind them of what Christ would later say in John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. This man sums it up like this. Only when the disciples are caught up short do they learn that they do not possess anything. The power belongs entirely to God and must be received anew each time from him through a life of prayer. Paul said it like this in Romans 15. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. This failure is exactly what they needed to remind them that they possessed nothing, but that only through Christ could they do this. Every year, for more than a decade, this magazine called Parachutist, uh, the, the official publication of the United States Parachute Association, every year they publish an article called their Fatality Summary. And in the article, in the article, a writer analyzes the factors contributing to parachuting deaths in the previous year. Parachutists are classified first as students. And after 20 jumps, they receive their A license. After 50, they receive their B license. After 100 jumps, their C license. And after 200 jumps, they receive a D license. So in the 1993 fatality summary, the man writing the article points to an alarming statistic amongst parachutists. 59% of all parachuting fatalities were suffered by, what do you think, the, the beginners? The students, they're suffered by 59% of all fatalities. Parachuting are suffered by elite parachutists, those with a D license. And he shows a graph with this article, and he shows uh, the dramatic upward spike for, for, for the fatalities among those jumpers with 200 to 1,000 jumps. Most fatalities happen among the elite. And he points out the lesson is clear, that just because a person uh, has that much experience doesn't mean he or she is invulnerable. And that these who with between 200 and 1,000 jumps simply were overconfident. Overconfident. In 
And I wonder perhaps if some of your failures can be chalked up to your overconfidence. You know, those famous, famous three words we've all heard, I got this. I got this. And the other three second most famous words that we hear, you got this. Well, in reality, we should say, you know, I'm nowhere close to getting this. I do not got this. I do not have this. It's funny, we can have one or two successes, even less than these nine men. One or two successes spiritually, and our chest puffs out, we held our, hold our heads erect until the next day when we stumble so badly. In scene four, in this epilogue, Jesus explains to his men that like the boy's father, they too must be desperately dependent on him. Desperately dependent on him. I, I want you to hear the way Paul put this because Paul experienced the same thing. Paul had uh, received visions uh, of what he says is the third heaven. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's a reason God gives us new trials. There's a reason that he might not heal us of something. And what would that be? It's to keep us from becoming conceited and to keep us desperately dependent on him, to keep us clinging to Christ. Friend, if, if that at all speaks to you this morning, I, perhaps you're here having just fallen flat on your face. Well, there's a reason God allowed it. He allowed it so you would cling to him. So that you would cling to him. Maybe you're here today and maybe you're about to fall. Maybe you're thinking, I, I do got this. I've been a Christian now for three years. And I think I've pretty much got everything down. Buckle up, friend. 
In truth, we've all fallen down. And we will continue. So Christ can make, make us like this dad in our account. Desperately dependent on Christ. Jesus, we, um, we confess to you that many times we are flat out proud. And lest we look down our nose at these nine men who failed, we must look in the mirror and see ourselves in the same situation. Jesus, I pray that you would continue to do whatever you need to do to keep us humbly dependent on your grace and your power. Jesus, do this work in us by your good spirit, we ask. Savior, in your name, amen.